Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Insider. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. April is National Poetry Month, and to kick off the month, PW ran a feature entitled What Happens When Verse Goes Viral? And that piece was written by our new poetry editor, Maya Popa. Hello, Maya. So glad you could join us. Happy to be here. So as we know, there aren't very many poetry-specific jobs for poets. You teach, you run a writing program, and here you are as our new poetry editor. Is it all that you thought it was going to be? How's it been? (laughs) Excellent question. Um, It's been wonderful. I think it's a joy to get to engage with contemporary poetry in this way. Um, I'm a poet myself, so the more I can be reading, the better. Um, So to be able to look at the amazing, amazing books that are coming out um, and to support those writers is um, really just a gift and a joy. So this piece right here, um, we're talking about poets who share their work over social media platforms such as Twitter. Um, What's been happening? You know, the most interesting thing, I think every writer to some extent has thought about his or her own relationship to social media, and to get to speak to five poets, so it was Ruby Carr, Denez Smith, Eduardo Corral, Rachel McKibbins, and Paisley Rectal, um, and to hear how they're managing the sort of pros and cons of being a poet on social media um, was really, really interesting. So what's going on is that um, we're all using it to some extent, even if you're choosing not to engage on social media, that's a form of engagement. Um, That's a decision that will be in some ways scrutinized Mm -hmm. and um, talked about. So it was interesting to see that all five poets acknowledged both the pros and the cons of the form. Some of the chief sort of benefits of it being the ability to connect to a wider audience, to share poetry widely and variously, hopefully, um, and to also connect to a readership. I think that was particularly important for... um, So has that actually been happening? Yeah. So, you know, I think someone like Rupi Carr is a perfect example of um, something that might not have happened otherwise, right? This book began with a modest following on Instagram. Right. Um, She is now at... You know, the book Milk and Honey has sold over 3.5 million copies. Um, There's no question when you speak to her that she feels connected and indebted to her audience um, and that she sees it as a wholly positive way of of bringing women together and perhaps talking about some experiences that might not be typically discussed in, in poetry or at least not that she had come across in the past. In other ways, though, you know, I also noticed poets expressing some skepticism and concern about whether what we're doing when we engage over social media is creating a kind of aesthetic or a kind of echo chamber, right? That may not be as generous and various as you'd hope it would be. Mm. So Paisley said it best, I think, when she said, you know, um, with the millions of people online, you'd think there'd be millions of perspectives and millions of poems being circulated. That's not the case. You see the same sort of handful of books and handful of poems being discussed or Eduardo noticed that, you know, there's sometimes a preference for a a kind of smart lyric line that is easily quotable, and that could end up being circulated widely. But then what happens to all those other poems that might be a bit more challenging or not render as well online? Um, What happens to them, right? They're not necessarily being circulated. So it's interesting to think about how our own tastes might change as a result of what we're seeing and consuming, um, sometimes inadvertently. So we think of the poetry world, at least I do sometimes, as a small group of relatively small, there's a lot of poets out mm-hmm. there, but almost a, a sense of gatekeepers mm-hmm. who decide which poems get published in mm-hmm. which magazines. So 
you were saying that the whole idea of social media out on Twitter might have opened it up to others, but it mm-hmm. doesn't seem to be. So there doesn't seem to be that sense of gatekeeping that it really is, in fact, the people who are writing poetry and getting it out are writing poetry and mm-hmm. getting it mm-hmm. out. Um, that's a very interesting question. You know, someone like Rachel McKibbins, who lives in upstate New York in a relatively remote and, and um, in a community that is not, let's say, as poetically vibrant as New York City, finds it essential to mm-hmm. promoting her own reading series, which she sort of uh, oversees. She actually also, I learned um, by speaking to her, runs a restaurant with a few other poets. So there you go for entrepreneurship there. I like Great. that a lot. Yeah. So to her, it's been essential to find and build a community and in some ways, perhaps even with those gatekeepers to get her poems out there. Um, it also allowed her, as, as I discuss in the piece, to highlight plagiarism that was happening, you know, of her own work. Um, so I think ultimately... I think that is widening a community in a way that might not physically be possible, right? It might not physically, she may not be physically able to go to readings to meet with particular um, editors of magazines. But again, by having her work circulated, and it has been circulated widely, um, will perhaps draw attention in that way. But of course, you know, there have to be constraints and limits, right? So Twitter is giving you 180 words or 180 mm-hmm. characters, I should say, um, within which to sort of prove your piece's merits or to circulate a stanza. And um, I wonder how something like Jory Graham would mm-hmm. hold up, right? Or Ann Carson with the long lines. Something has to be lost, right? Unless you're physically screenshotting it. So I think for me, ultimately, we'll have to see what ends up happening, right? 10, 15 years from now. Somewhere like Eduardo Corral started off on Tumblr and was keeping a poetry Tumblr, and eventually that Tumblr is now not as popular as it was maybe five, six um, years ago. And now Twitter sort of become the predominant form through which poetry is circulated. So, so the book you were just talking about, uh, Rupee Covers Milk and Honey, came out in 2013. How was the reception then? I mean, it sold an unbelievable amount Mm -hmm. of books for any books, let Mm -hmm. alone, you know, poetry. Mm -hmm. How how was she perceived? I mean, was she taken seriously before? Yeah, I think she's very humble about her own sort of origin. She was a a performance poet, so Mm -hmm. she began... I think performing to an audience, she's from Canada originally, so she was doing that um, quite regularly, began her Instagram, as she told me, um, after a breakup, and, you know, included illustrations. I think she was offering something new. I don't think there were many writers who were, you know, self-publishing, as Instagram always is in some ways, that is a form of self-publishing, illustrations and excerpts of poems that were in many ways highly relatable to certain audiences. The fact that these were then compiled into a book that has sold 3.6 million copies makes it a phenomenon. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is certainly not the norm. And I think for every rupee, there are probably thousands of others who are doing the same thing and not being noticed for it. Um, I think in her case, the consistency of of it, the upkeep, the aesthetic has made her popular as I think you know, um, part of what makes a successful Instagram platform and a kind of brand, which this is, whether we like to think about that or not, it seems rather capitalist and commercial to think about it as such. But we are, as Paisley says in this piece, branding ourselves anytime we have an identity online, right? Um, I think the brand was very consistent and, and clearly engaging and evocative enough to warrant those sales. So whether or not she's taken seriously by quote unquote, you know, poets coming out of Hazel right. River is sort of at the end of the day is not not really relevant. We're calling these two things poetry, right? Um, yeah. She's not she's not writing in a similar way to Eduardo Corral, right? Mm-hmm. Or to um, Rachel McKibbins necessarily, though they, they share certain topics in common. And, y- you know, you would hope that there's 
that our audiences are various enough to respond to all of these works. Although at the same time saying that, having said that, I don't see Denez Smith selling 3.6 million copies necessarily. And perhaps right. that's a shame, right? Right, right. And so do you see that the form has kind of changed or the, you know, over social media, the way people write mm-hmm. poetry? Like my 13-year-old son, referring to a 21 Savage song, talks about <laughs> rappers as rappers and rappers as memes. So are, are, we, uh, are, are we kind of creating poets as memes here? Yeah, poetry is memes. It's a great question. I think um, everything is bound to be a meme because we've become this bizarrely self-conscious culture. I mean, sincerity is something we shy from, I think. And there is something utterly sincere about, and I I mean that in the positive way um, and not in the sentimental way, about um, crafting a poem and sharing it with a wider audience. Rachel McKibben's talked about having excerpts of her poems taken out of context and mm. used in a kind of meme way, meaning, uh, you know, one line that seems to be about the uh, a beloved, um, then superimposed on a woman of a, the photo of a woman looking sad by a window, a moody picture. Right? This is happening. Right? Sure. Uh, we are now ascribing, yeah, yeah. Um, and and again, that's sort of the danger of having works repurposed out of physical copy is that you can do anything you want with it. Um, so, you know, I don't think, I don't frankly think it's changing anything. I think the way we are seeing things um, is by necessity different, right? There's what Henry James would call an abuse of visibility mm-hmm. in social media, right? You log on and all you see, if you're someone who follows poets, are more excerpts of poems and you're digesting them in a way that's not always thoughtful. I think that is true. Um, at the same time, I don't think it's changing how we write. I think, you know, there will hopefully always be a constituency of people who are writing only what the, he or she, you know, wishes to write. Um, and that's how you get the best work. And I think ultimately that's that's what's happening. It's the way that we're processing and what we're seeing is different than, right. you know, but it won't necessarily affect how we are writing. Tell us about the other two or three who you covered here. So um, Denez Smith um, is... A, a wonderful poet. Um, they are interested in language um, being used in a sort of democratic, accessible fashion. And it was interesting to see, to ask them um, what their writing practice was like and whether it was affected by social media. And what they said was that it made them in some ways more confident in doing what they've always been interested in doing because this kind of casual rhetoric. And I, and I, I even feel strange saying casual because the poems are endlessly complicated and rich, but the sort of demotic speech comes in. Um, so I thought that was actually a really nice nod to the ways that the internet can actually right. help us feel confident in what we're doing in our own work um, and in, in a kind of um, register that may, may not have been present in poetry prior. Paisley's a fascinating person. Um, she's a nonfiction writer as well, also current poet laureate of Utah, and her uses of social media are really interesting. She uses it to do research for books. So she'll put a call to the community asking for particular things. And she admitted she she would have struggled to write these books had she not been able to use social media to connect right. with people. And in her role as Poet Laureate, social media is essential in gathering communities and sort of letting them know what she's, what she's up to in um, their area and in connecting with local teachers. So I would say, you know... Again, I would say they each expressed a healthy amount of skepticism. Um, Eduardo, whose work is really lyrical, rich, and interested in community and and language and how, you know, he talks a lot about his Mexican identity and about um, borders and about American sort of politics in relation to that. It was interesting to see that his work aligns with his reservations about social media. 
he is perhaps concerned that we are promoting a particular viewpoint when we retweet and when we send out stuff that um, is not necessarily considering the whole picture, right? Not a whole snapshot of poetry. It's just right. a small sliver of that. So, And that aligns, I think, with his work in, in many ways. So you've mentioned a couple times community, talking about Eduardo, talking about Rachel Upstate. Has the internet created a community for poets? And is that community comfortable or is it con- or can it be contentious and divisive like so much of social media can it can definitely be contentious and divisive just as communities in the flesh can be contentious and divisive although i'd say that we have perhaps um the added sort of benefit of having screens and some kind of anonymity, right? right. Um, you might not go up to a poet at a reading and say, I disagree with your politics adamantly. I think you suck, right? That's not what would happen. Yeah. Um, so in some ways, the gloves are off. And I think that does create divisive and contentious um, moments on Twitter. You know, personally, I find it hard. I find that part hard. I find it, um, you know, we occasionally have a calling out culture. So I always want to assume best intentions of work that's written, but it can be very easy to log on and say, I think this person is doing X, Y, and Z, or this person um, is a blank, insert whatever um, accusation, and then have that gain of following. So we have to be careful. I think just as you would in real life, you have to be, we do have to be conscious of how we're engaging with each other and, and to assume, ideally to assume the best of one another, because we have seen in the last few years, some pretty bloody poetry battles (laughs) undertaken (laughs) over Twitter that um, at the end of the day, I I don't know how much that actually serves us, right? I don't know. If I were to say that for each one of those, there are enormous um, leaps forward in democratizing and and bringing awareness to different, then I would say, sure, go for it. But sometimes it feels... it feels it can feel egregious to do that. Although, again, Rachel's situation was one in which the whole community gathered to find that there were several other poets whose work had been plagiarized, mm. and they could support each other. I can imagine what it feels like to have work plagiarized, especially work of a highly personal nature. So to be able to find that community and to together right. sort of bring this person to task, I think, is really interesting. I have one more question, but I, I want to talk about plagiarism. Where have plagiarized poems shown up in some ways it's easier to plagiarize than ever right because of the way that poetry is being circulated not always in book form right and things can be misattributed which is also the you know um in this piece we talk about a poet whose work who, who wrote a poem about Frida Kahlo that is now attributed to Frida Kahlo. I mean, that's a comedic example mm. of that happening and of unintentional plagiarism. In fact, this poet's handle on Twitter is, I wrote the poem about Frida Kahlo that is now attributed to Frida mm-hmm. Kahlo. But I think in, the case, in Rachel McKibben's case, you know, the work had been read and perhaps admired, and then this poet went ahead and had it tattooed, had a line tattooed on her body right that was more or less a plagiarized line um almost like a semantic sort of translation with each word um which with each word slightly modified this seems like an extreme example um but but is indeed what was going on and this is a poet who had a book deal um Mm. and who had spoken on the rumpus about how her work you know how sort of the unique nature of her inspiration of her work so I, I do think it happens unintentionally at times, too. And every poet who's ever been in an MFA will tell you that they'll come up with a line that's really good and think, holy shit, is this, is this, is this mine or is right. this, um, you know, someone that I really love? Um, 
but I, you know, I, I think it can happen when you're circulating things quickly, retweeting things quickly. I don't think we always have time on a form that's so quick to really think about how we're engaging with the language. The tattoo that reminded me of one of my favorite writers, Harry Cruz, who had tattooed on his arm a line from E.E. E. Cummings' poem. It said, how do you like your blue-eyed boys, Mr. Death? Oh. Um, so I'm not too sure if he attributed it to E.E. E. Cummings, but but he would, yeah. Where was that tattoo? That's uh, my right question. On his, right on his, on, on his shoulder. Yeah, okay, on good. his shoulder. Yeah, Excellent. yeah, on his arm. Excellent. Yeah, on the upper it's arm. It's a great place yeah, for it. Yeah. I thought so, too. Yeah. So now I'm going to step back from social media, and I'm going to ask you the question that I always hate being asked because I put you on the spot. What are one or two of the books of poems you're looking forward to? And I realize that both you and I work as reviews editors, mm-hmm, work mm-hmm. months ahead of time. So um, it's it's always a tough tough thing to say because are these books out now or what's coming out? We yeah. have so many titles in yeah. our head. But are yeah. there any that you... Yes, I'm wild for um, Soft Targets by Deborah Landau, who is mm. a fantastic, um, fantastic poet. And she manages to talk about global terror and beauty and pleasure and the coexistence of all of these things uh, in a way that I think is really sort of fresh and interesting. The poet Brenda Shaughnessy is someone at whose altar I worship, and she um, has a new book called The Octopus Museum that imagines in this kind of dystopian way um, what will happen, what would happen to us if um, we were overtaken by octopuses, but that sounds absurd and reductionist, but it is a book that looks at gender and um, mm. sort of crises today. I'm, and then I would say um, Tina Chang's book, Hybrida, which is forthcoming in May, which looks at race. And I think, again, you know, th- these books are highly lyrical, highly rich, sonically moving, but looking at um, some of the biggest problems plaguing our culture. And I think that's why I love them is that I get everything I could possibly get from poetry, from reading books Mm -hmm. that engage in a way that, you know, the news cannot, but is not sort of ignoring that is really just taking into account everything we're we're wrestling with as humans. And so those three, I would say, are, are at the top of my list. Sounds great. And how succinctly put. And they were right there. Uh, that was uh, that, that seemed really easily done. Thank you so much. <laughs> so we've been talking about verse on social media and in book form with PW's new poetry editor, Maya Popa. Maya, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe to PW Insider on iTunes, and we'll see you next week.